Hello, welcome to the Echo Church Podcast. We're a group of people in Cincinnati, Ohio, who simply love Jesus and want to journey through the ups and downs of our faith together. We're so glad you're here. Today, today, I have an important question for you. How have your tastes changed over the years? I have to tell you, my love language is food. So you can get me in a really good conversation about food if we got going here. But I know there's probably something on your plate or something that you're craving, something that you order at a restaurant now that probably you didn't as a kid. Or maybe you didn't even two years ago. I used to be under that fallacy that they say, like, your tastes change every seven years. That's really actually false. Your taste buds change every two weeks. Did you know that? Our taste buds are regenerating every couple of weeks, so there's always a new chance to like something new. But the thing is, we're talking about taste on our tongue. They've got sweet, we've got sour, we've got salty, bitter, and umami. Have you heard of that one? It's like the MSG flavor, meaty, savory is what they call it. Five sections that we're all tasting But whether you like those tastes or not, that's all about flavor. Let me give you a fun definition of flavor. We're going to put it up on the screen that Helen Hopfer said. Flavor is a multi-sensory construct that our brain composes from multiple sensations. Taste, smell, and sound. Have you ever thought about the way sound affects what you eat? But also our experiences, because you might have a hidden memory of something that tastes really good because maybe it makes you think of your grandma's house when you were a little kid. But maybe something else makes you think of that time you were embarrassed uh, and had broccoli in your teeth. So maybe you hate broccoli, right? So there's all kinds of things that go into flavor. But what I think is fascinating is that you can work on things to like the flavor of something better. You can retrain your brain. Burke and Elizabeth Schartzis, who who are members here at church, they used to be missionaries in Thailand. And I recall that Burke said before he went over, he wanted to learn to like spicy food. So just little by little, he kept trying to eat hotter and hotter things. And by the time they moved over there, he said he could eat the spicier Thai food. Now for me, I've realized, here's what's changed recently. Guys, I was really sad about it. I tried to eat a Reese cup the other day. I didn't like it. That was my favorite food as a kid. That was like the Halloween candy I hoarded. I didn't like it. I like dark chocolate now. I don't like milk chocolate anymore. I go to make a cup of coffee. I go to pour myself a glass of iced tea. I don't put sweetener in it anymore. Guys, I like arugula on pizza. And you know what all those things have in common? They're bitter foods, I found out. I have become a bitter person. So today, we are going to look in scripture. We're starting a whole new series, and it's called Bittersweet, because we are going to meet someone today who goes from sweet to becoming a bitter, bitter person. And we're going to find out why, and we're going to find out, you know, what we can learn about this. This is the book of Ruth, and I forgot to check the page number, but there are Bibles in the pews if you'd like. If you'd like to follow along today, we're going to read all of Ruth 1. Some of the words will be on the screen. I will read a lot to you. Now, this is an Old Testament book, and I've 
I've always liked this, and I'm glad that we can have this series where we just really dig in to the word here. And although it's named the book of Ruth, the person we're mainly going to talk about today is not a whole lot about Ruth herself. In fact, this book could be named Naomi because this is her story too. So we're going to open up with verse 1, and I'm not even going to get far past the first sentence when we're going to have a lot of history in this one sentence. Ruth 1, verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. When the judges ruled, I don't know if you know much about biblical history, but if you see in our Bibles, right before Ruth, we have the book of Judges. And in the Judges, it was a time, there was some lawlessness going on. I mean, God's people kept trying to have different leaders, but they didn't want a king. And at the very end of the book of Judges, it ominously says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they saw fit. I mean, you and I, we know a lot of people, right? If everyone did as they saw fit, we're going to have some trouble. And in fact, I want us to keep this atmosphere in mind. Because in the time of Judges, you can read some stories where specifically women were harmed. And so we're going to look and we're going to read a story about women looking for a future. And things were very dangerous in this time. The second phrase is that there was a famine in the land. And now I have to tell you that I typically just brush through that sentence, ready to jump into this story. But famine in the land. The women's small group here at Echo, we read through a book called Tim Shell. And it's a really neat storytelling interpretation of different stories from the Bible. And when she looked at Ruth, there was a whole chapter on imagining what famine in the land looked like. Like I brushed by it, but she's describing like, like this family would have looked out their door and seen their neighbors sick from no food, dying in the street, fighting over what little bread there was. We're going to find out that they lived in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Yet there was no bread. There was famine and the land. And so a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Okay, so they don't have any bread. Bethlehem, you probably are catching that city name where Jesus was born. But then they're going to go over to Moab. It's a neighboring country. Maybe we think of it like heading over to Indiana if we ran out of food, right? It's just a neighboring state. But if you were a Jewish listener to this story and you heard Moab, red flags, right and left, red flags. Why are they going to Moab? Moab has a history with Israel, guys. See, there was once the Moabites treated God's people so badly that they were, they were told, don't let them into the assembly. We cannot coexist. There's some Israelites that went hanging out with some Moabites, and then they turned them all away from God. There were some enemy feelings here. Moab was definitely the last place you would go for refuge because the two countries didn't get along. So the fact that this family chose Moab, number one, means they're desperate. Number two is, how's, how's this going to work out? How does the Jewish community feel about you choosing to go to Moab? It's some tension here. We're going to dig in over the next few weeks. 
but keep that in mind. This is our context. There's danger. There's crisis. And now there's heading to a place where enemies live. Verse 2, we're going to meet these people, and they've got some interesting names with some interesting meanings. Verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. They're Ephrathites from Bethlehem, and they went to Moab and lived there. Okay, names are important. We've got them on the screen here. Elimelech, my God, is king. He is from this line in Judah. He is a good Jewish man. Naomi means my sweetness. But their sons, not really sure why they're choosing these names. Did you not feel the foreboding there when you picked sickness and death for your sons' names? Let's keep reading. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons, without her husband. So there, the sickness and the death of their names came to fruition. First, there was violence and famine in her homeland, and now Naomi, she's living as a refugee, as an outsider, and then all her protectors, the men in her family, have passed. That makes her very vulnerable. And I want us to think about what's not mentioned here in Scripture. There are no grandchildren mentioned for Naomi. There might be some infertility there. There might be some heartache of more death and miscarriages because for some reason, for 10 years, these sons and daughters-in-law did not have children. And that was a big thing in this culture. There was a lot of grief that's sitting right here. But we've got a little bit of hope in verse 6. Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. So back in Israel, the famine was over, food was arriving. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place she had been living, set out on the road to go back to the land of Judah. Now, this was an amazing thing that God was providing food. But somewhere along the way, verse 8, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. So for some reason, they're headed out to go back and find hope and food in her homeland. But she realizes, maybe this won't be the best for my daughters-in-law. They're from Moab. Maybe they would have a better chance of survival. Maybe they can find protection and new husbands and something else back where they came from. Maybe she remembered what it felt like to live for a refugee so long. And didn't want to put that on her daughter's-in-law. We don't know. For some reason, something clicks in her mind and she says, go back. Verse 8, may the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So she has this heart here. Naomi is like, okay, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find a future for you. Maybe you should head back. Now, I want you to look at the word kindness. This is something very specific in Hebrew. I'm going to try to pronounce it. Chesed. You like that? Chesed means loving kindness. But it's 
It's like more than what we can just say, like they're a nice person. It's like going to the depth and giving graciously when you don't know if you'll ever be responded to in in return. It's this depth of generosity and caring that demonstrates a commitment. The people of God were followers of Yahweh. That's the name they called the Lord God. And when you demonstrated chesed, you were showing a covenantal commitment as Yahweh had shown to you. That is your response. This is a deep cultural value. And Naomi says, these Moabite women from an enemy territory, the people who were used to be so mean to the Israelites, they are demonstrating chesed, this deep value of Yahweh. She said they showed it to their husbands. They showed it to Naomi as their mother-in-law. This is why we care about this family, is to show the deep love that they have. So I don't want us to miss that this word kindness in our translation, how powerful. And rabbis will say that the entire book of Ruth is a way to look at chesed deeper. So I want us to keep this in mind as we keep reading this book. We're going to come back to verse 9. Naomi kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who would become your husbands? Return home. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. We're going to talk about this in a minute because Naomi's words here are out of pain. And I want us to see that perhaps her interpretation may not be correct. Has the Lord's hand turned against her? We're going to keep talking about it. Verse 14, they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. There's a lot of different ways to look at this scripture. Orpah listened to her mother-in-law and returned to her family, to her home. And Ruth chose to stay with Naomi. And those are both beautiful choices. And in their culture, they both honored different people by making these choices. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And you might have heard these verses before. Ruth said this to her mother-in-law. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Again, I love digging into scripture and reading commentaries about people who know the original Hebrew because this is fascinating to me here. We always see like, your people will be my people. That sounds very future tense, right? Like, this is my promise to you. But actually, in the Hebrew, there are no verbs. It says, your people, my people. Your God, my God. And... Candy Queen Sutherland, who is a researcher, professor, and Old Testament scholar, she said, when you don't see the verbs there, it tends to mean present tense. 
This is a fact that Ruth is stating. Whether as rabbis say that she converted to Judaism or whether it's just we've been family so long, this is how it is. Your people, my people. It's already a fact. She's like, let me go with you because I've already claimed them as my own. Let's keep reading as they get to Bethlehem. Verse 19. The two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You feel the pain there? Don't call me sweet. My name means sweet, and I don't want to identify with that anymore. Call me bitter. It's hard to see when devastation has come upon us. It feels like everything is against us. And Naomi's like, the Lord has done this to me. I I don't feel like the Lord has. But I'm going to let her have her moment. God's not yelling back at her for feeling this way, for being honest about this bitterness. She just is. And sometimes we have to say it out loud and we have to like give it up and just say, this feels awful. This feels very bitter right now. I'm going to look for hope though for Naomi where she can't see it for herself. Because I can look in the story and I can be like, Naomi, God gave you two amazing daughters-in-law who loved you as much as they loved their own family. God provided a way for you to get back to your homeland and feel a sense of belonging again. I can look back because I'm not living that. I can look in history. I can see on these pages and I know what's to come. But in the moment... It's okay to just sit, be sad, and be angry, and be honest. And that's where we're going to leave Naomi for now. We're not going to rush through it. Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. We're going to get to the next chapter next week. But for now, let's sit. Let's sit in the bitterness. You see, back to our food conversation, biologists were like, okay, well, we have this bitter taste in order to let ourselves know humanity needs to recognize where food is dangerous. And yet, then we've also discovered there's a lot of nutrients in this bitter food. So maybe it's about the amount that you have And how much you can tolerate and how much you can sit in just a little bit to get out of danger into better. And so with Naomi and so with us, maybe we just need to sit and look around and find the nutrient-rich truth and not let the bitter get the better of us. Because when I look at Naomi's story... I can see that she was believing some lies 
And I think we do too. And I want us to call them out. I want us to call lies out as lies. Because the biggest thing that we face, I feel like daily, is getting out of our own heads sometimes. Things that people have said, they sit in our minds and we can't let them go. All the doubts that we have just churn and churn and we can't get out of our own minds. And it takes a lot of work. I've gotten to meet a lot of amazing people in healthcare and mental health to say it takes work and it's worth it. But I've come to appreciate just how much we have to remind ourselves of the truth. So lie number one, what did Naomi believe? What do we believe? Bad things are happening. I must be bad. The truth is that the world is broken. And yes, sometimes we contribute to the brokenness, but a lot of times we're fixing it. And even though, yes, when we do someone wrong, there's going to be some consequences and we're going to have to fix some things. But that doesn't mean that every tragedy that happens is our fault. And that's a lie that I can say is a lie in the good times. But as soon as something bad happens to me, I'm thinking, what did I do wrong, God? Do you feel that? It's hard to overcome that lie. But the truth is, the world is broken, and it's not because we're bad that this bad thing happens. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, he said, Your Father in heaven causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You want rain, you want sun. Some days you get what you want, some days you don't. And the person down the street who's being an idiot gets the same thing. God showers love on all of us because he wants all of us to be cared for. But the opposite is true. The junk in this world, the results of someone else's awful choices that can fall on the righteous and the unrighteous too. I just want you to know it's not your fault. There are things happening, and I want you to know it's not your fault. Lie number two. Well, I messed up, so now it's all over for me. Yes, sometimes we sin. Yes, we're going to keep sinning. But God knows we aren't perfect, and the Spirit still has things for us to do. We are not counted out. I am sure Ruth and Naomi were not perfect people. God still provided. He gives us chances after chances. And if you look around this room or in any room, everyone fails. Yet I have to believe that you have hope for someone else. Because when you look at your friend, you think, oh, sure, you've done some stuff in the past, but I can see so much potential for your future. But do you ever have a hard time saying that for yourself? Give yourself that same perspective. Give yourself hope. Because God has plans for you. He needs you in this world. Lie number three. I have to put on a happy face. The truth is, it's okay to be honest. As we said, we let Naomi sit in her bitterness. When you're honest, you give other people permission to be honest. And you give other people permission to love you authentically. They're gonna, you, 
If you communicate that you're hurting, then you give somebody else the opportunity to come alongside of you. Someone God has purposely put in your life. They're going to need the same from you in return. Naomi was bitter. Job, if you've ever read that story, Job lost so many things and he cried out to God that this was unfair. Jesus didn't put on a happy face and he was perfect. He wasn't even sinning. He wasn't, you know, he was just dealing with people. Jesus got angry. He got sad. He screamed out to the father on the cross. We don't always have to put on a happy face. That's okay. That's not what faith is about. Faith is about leaning on one another, knowing who to turn to. And that's that lie number four, the lie that says, I'm alone. Naomi felt alone. She was just like, go back to your land. It's just me. I've got to deal with this on my own. I've lost everything. I might as well just keep going by myself. But God never leaves. Maybe that's why God showed up through Ruth to say, where was Yahweh in all this? She thought Yahweh was against her. He was showing up through Ruth right by her side, not leaving. He's saying, I'm providing for you because I love you. We're never alone. God spoke through Moses and said, go tell this to my people. Be strong, courageous, Don't be afraid or terrified, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Centuries later, the Spirit guided the writer of Hebrews to say the same message to future generations. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Naomi She couldn't hear from God verbally. And I think that's why she felt alone. But there's something about silence. Like when you go and you see a friend hurting and you're like, I don't know what to say. Or when you're feeling awful and someone comes into your presence and you're like, I... You don't have to say anything. Words can't fix this. Words are just maybe going to make it worse. I just need you to be here for a minute. I see that the silence from God didn't mean he left. Just means he was sitting in, in their presence for a while. There's a medical doctor named Rachel Rimmon, and she said she watched so many patients battling life-threatening illnesses, and she watched those who love them come by their sides. She said a loving silence often has far more power to heal and to connect than the most well-intentioned words. Silence is not God's absence. He's just sitting there with us, crying. Jesus wept with his friends. I just picture Yahweh right there trying to be present where Elimelech and Malon and Kilion had passed. And I believe God's spirit here in this world today does the same for us. That his presence is with us. And we may not hear words and we may wonder, I can't see you. But his presence is promised. And his silence may just be giving us the space. In Romans 8, 
we're told that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Sometimes God doesn't even have the words because the words won't fix. So I don't think his silence is his absence. I think it's his presence, his wordless groans, his care for us that he will never forsake. I want us to remember these truths. It's hard. You might need to repeat them often. You might need one another. Let's repeat them to each other. Let's repeat these truths when we see other people who are carrying heavy burdens. It's okay to sit in this bitterness, but let's, let's see how we can take that bitter and keep growing. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for being present. Thank you for being with us, bringing people into our lives, for giving us the opportunity to be bitter for a little while, and for loving us and never leaving us anyway, for knowing that we have to go through the bitter things to keep growing and going. Thank you for those you've put into our lives to remind us of your truth and your love and your presence. And God, thank you for redeeming. Thank you for giving us hope that you will act, you will move, you do care and protect, and you will bring sweetness back into our life. We trust in you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Echo Church. If you ever want to join us in person, we're located in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we meet on Sundays at 1030 a.m. You'll find us at 1301 East McMillan Street. That's in the Walnut Hills neighborhood, just up the street from our city's beautiful Eden Park. Find out more about us on our website, echochurch.org. That's E-C-H-O church dot O-R-G. Have a great week.